Welcome to the Redeemer East Harlem podcast. We pray this message leads you both to know and show the love of Christ in all areas of life. We will now dive into our scripture reading, followed by this week's message. So today, God speaks to us from John chapter uh, 17, from verse 1 all the way to verse 20. 耶稣说了这话就举目望天说父啊时候到了愿你荣耀你的儿子使儿子也荣耀你正如你所你曾赐给他权柄管理凡有血气的叫他将永生赐给你所赐给他的人 父啊，现在求你使我与你同享荣耀，就是在未有世界以前，我同你所有的荣耀。Next，你从世上呃赐给我的人，我已经将你的名显显与你们他们，他们本是你的，你将他们赐给我，他们也是遵守你的道。如今
is in the context of a prayer. Now, this prayer that we just heard read is what is called the high priestly prayer. Uh, you may know the priests of the day served as uh, intermediaries between God and his people. Uh, the high priest served by bringing the needs and the offerings of the people to God in the temple. Uh, and in the book of Hebrews, time and time again, the author of that book speaks of Jesus as our high priest, the ultimate and the fullest picture of a mediator between us and God. And this prayer, in this prayer, we get some of the most important thoughts of our high priest. And as a result, this prayer is the most important and instructive of prayers for us to consider. And so with all of that in mind, we continue our series uh, in the book of John called A Public Faith. Throughout the series, uh, we've considered some of the unique claims of the Christian faith uh, so that Christians uh, might wrestle with what it means to live their faith out in a public way, ultimately, so that those who uh, we interact with who maybe uh, are processing the Christian faith might understand those claims better and ultimately, as a result, prayerfully come to know Jesus and trust and rest in him. And today, to know Jesus better, to see him more fully, we want to take a look at some of his final words, some of the most important words to Jesus here in this high priestly prayer. And so to do that, let's consider how he prays, then consider who he prays for, and then finally we'll take a look at what he prays for. All right, so first, how he prays. Uh, first, I want to use this as an occasion to consider uh, a theology of prayer by looking at how Jesus goes about praying. And I want to actually focus for a moment on the theology uh, of Jesus praying to the Father. Kind of a key thing here. Why is that important? Well, for one, it's worth noting that this is God the Son praying to God the Father. All right, so this prayer is a glimpse into a conversation being had within the triune Godhead. Again, all the more emphasizing the significance of this prayer. But also, there's an important uh, theological reason for why our prayers also should be directed to the Father in the way that Jesus prays to the Father. Uh, in Matthew 6, in the Lord's Prayer, which, of course, we pray every week, Jesus says, uh, when he teaches us how to pray, he says, when you pray, you should say, our Father. Why? Well, it's our understanding of prayer that's rooted in a, in a triune God working in harmony for our redemption and our reconciliation. See, in, in sum, we come to the Father by the work of the Son through the power of the Holy Spirit. This is how we understand prayer to work. Jesus, the Son of God, our high priest, accomplishes a work for us on our behalf in his life, his death, his resurrection, which leads to our reconciliation with God the Father. And that work that Jesus accomplishes is then applied to us by the power of the Holy Spirit in order that we might then approach the Father. We cannot approach the Father without this accomplished work of the Son and without the application of that work by the Spirit. This is why in our, our liturgy of prayer, one that most of us are very familiar with, we end with the prayer in Jesus' name because it's a recognition that we do not and cannot come to the Father in our own authority. 
We come only in the authority of Jesus and by the power of the Spirit. So when Jesus tells us explicitly in the Lord's Prayer and implicitly in his high priestly prayer to pray to the Father, he is showing us the importance of how we approach this triune God. So why, why bring this up? Because it's important to notice that this, this matters to Jesus. Notice how Jesus goes about praying. I mean, even Jesus, the Son of God, recognized the importance of praying to the Father. And so as a result, we too should see the necessity of it. Now, with that in mind, with that said, does that mean then that we should not pray to Jesus or pray to the Spirit, right? Pray to these other persons of the Trinity. I mean, can we approach the triune God by speaking to Jesus or the Holy Spirit? Well, I'll speak to that for a moment. There are moments in the New Testament when we actually get examples uh, of speaking or praying to Jesus. So, for example, the phrase Maranatha can mean, maybe you've heard that before, but it's all throughout the New Testament, it can mean the Lord has come. But in places like 1 Corinthians 16 or Revelation 22, it's actually better translated, come, Lord, come, Lord Jesus. In other words, it's speaking to Jesus in our longing for him to return because we know that he one day will do so. And then another example of this would be, I heard one theologian note that in Ephesians 4, we're told that we can grieve the Holy Spirit. And that since the Holy Spirit is a person of the Trinity, it seems appropriate to apologize or to repent to the Spirit when we have grieved the Spirit. And so these are examples of speaking to God the Son, God the Spirit, but those examples are specific situations. And as a normative practice of prayer, in our regular rhythms of prayer, Jesus is teaching us that we pray to the Father through the work and the authority of the Son, by the power of the Spirit. And keeping this clear, I'm spending time on this, because keeping this clear actually deepens our prayer life. It deepens our understanding of what is happening in prayer. Lest we treat prayer flippantly, there is significant work being accomplished in prayer. It helps us recognize and remember that the Father is not the Son, that the Son is not the Spirit, that the Spirit is not the Father or the Son, and yet the Father, Son, and Spirit are all at the same time one. And every time we pray, we can take seriously the fullness of this triune God by remembering that Jesus teaches us how to pray by going to the Father in his authority, in the work that he has accomplished, as it, as it is applied to us by the power of the Spirit. There's a depth of understanding that can be had when we keep this clear in our prayers. But that said, not only does Jesus show us how to pray, but it also shows us who he is praying for. Let's consider that. Uh, there's two key passages in this prayer that I, I want us to uh, consider for a moment. Look at uh, verses uh, 9 through 11. Let me just reread those for you. It says this. I pray for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those who have, uh, you have given me, for they are yours. All I have is yours, and all you have is mine, and glory has come to me through them. I will remain in the world no longer, but they are still in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, protect them by the power of your name, the name that you gave me. This passage 
is key in our understanding of how, G, how we uh, have come to know Jesus, for those of you that are Christians. Because Jesus' prayer here is not a prayer for the world generally. He is not praying for those right now that are not of him, that are not in him. Instead, he is praying for those whom the Father has given to him. What does that mean? Let me explain that by considering several other things that Jesus has said throughout our series. In John 6, Jesus is speaking to those who trust in him. And in doing so, he says that all those the Father gives me will come to me. And then in John 10, he says that his sheep know his voice and that the shepherd lays down his life for his sheep. In other words, there is this particular group of people that the Father has given to Jesus and that now Jesus lays his life down for. And in our our theological understanding of this salvation that is accomplished, those that are given to Jesus and that Jesus lays down his life for, uh, there's a doctrine that I'm just going to really throw this out here and we're not going to spend a whole lot of time on it, but there's this doctrine uh, within our theological understanding known as limited atonement, which is not the best description of our understanding of what that doctrine speaks of. We tend to prefer uh, the doctrine, um, calling the doctrine a particular atonement. But this doctrine, uh, and for what it's worth, Christians very much debate this doctrine, but I'm giving to you our perspective right now, is essentially the belief that Jesus lays down his life for a limited group of people or a particular group of people, his sheep, that on the cross, Jesus does not die to atone for sin generally or in some hypothetical way, but when Jesus atones for sin on the cross, it's actual sins, thinking about actual people, people that according to Ephesians 1 were chosen before the foundations of the world, and that trusting and resting in Jesus as Savior is the sign that we are one of these chosen that we are those that have been given to Jesus, that we are his sheep, whom he lays his life down for. And as such, as Jesus points out in verse 11, the Father will protect and keep those sheep until the end. Because as um, Paul says in Philippians 1, that he who began a good work in you will carry it through to, to the completion until the day of Christ Jesus. Now, there is so much more to say about this topic, and I kind of threw it in here because, number one, Jesus addresses it, so we got to address it. But this is exactly the kind of thing that we'll be addressing in our class over the next five weeks, and so I'd encourage you, if you're interested, uh, to join that class because we'll be getting much deeper into all of those theological ideas. But for now, we should know that when Jesus prayed this prayer, he was praying for those whom the Father gave him. And who does that include? Well, It certainly included those that were with him, that followed him, that would have been with him uh, 2,000 years ago. But then look at verse 20. This verse has always blown me away. I think about this verse all the time. Jesus says, my prayer is not for them alone, right? Those that are with him at at this time. It's not for them alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message. Jesus is praying not only for his followers and disciples of that time, but Christian. He is also praying this prayer for you. I mean, this is a prayer that you can take very much for yourself. If you believe in Jesus, you you believe in him as the one that God has sent, 
and has accomplished a work for you, you are only able to do so because God used the disciples 2,000 years ago to go and make disciples who then went and made more disciples who then went and made more disciples and more disciples. And this went on and on for 2,000 years right up until this moment. You believed through their message, which means that this prayer that Jesus prays in John 17 is for you. And I love that verse because for me, it tears down all distance between what I'm reading and what I'm experiencing right now. This prayer is a direct prayer of Jesus for me and for you. Because this prayer is for those whom the Father has given, and as we trust and rest in Jesus, you are one of his sheep who can hear his voice. Again, this prayer is for you. And so with all that in mind, right, we consider how Jesus prays, emphasizing the, the, the work of this triune God. We see here that Jesus is praying this prayer for you and for me. So then what exactly is he praying for? Right? When Jesus is thinking about us as he prays, what is he praying for? Again, before he goes to the cross, the, those final words that he would want said, the most important things that he would want us to hear, what are they? Let's consider that finally. What he prays for you. There's four things in here that Jesus prays. He prays that we would be one. He prays that we would know the truth, that we would be on a mission, and that we would be sanctified. Those are the four things Jesus wants you to hear from him as he goes to the cross. Let's consider them each quickly. First, that we would be one. Look at verse 11. He says, I will remain in the world no longer, but they are still in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, protect them by the power of your name, the name you gave me, so that they may be one as we are one. Jesus prays that all his followers would be one just as he and the Father are one. Now, there are a couple of ways to look at that particular prayer. For one, Jesus knows the extent to which division is going to come amongst his followers. Now, even though he came to tear down the dividing wall of hostility amongst different people groups, he also knew that because of our ongoing sinfulness, our ongoing selfishness, our ongoing ignorance, we would find ways to functionally put those walls back up. And over the centuries, Christians have divided along all kinds of lines, doctrinal lines, cultural and racial lines, and so much more. I mean, right now, we, of course, have three major branches of Christianity. You have the Roman Catholic Church, Eastern Orthodox Church, and the Protestants, each of which has its own nuances about what they believe to be true about the Christian faith, and each of which tends to condemn the other for their views as being wrong. And then, even within each of those branches, there's so much disunity amongst them. So just take Protestants, for example. We are a Protestant church. Right? Within Protestantism, you have Presbyterians and Baptists, Pentecostals and Methodists, and on and on and on and on. Each of which, again, debating, arguing, even condemning each other for their views. And then, even within each of those groups, you have further subgroups. So we're a Presbyterian church. Well, just so you know, there are Presbyterians that believe very different things about a lot of different important things. And knowing all of this, all this division that would come, Jesus prays for our unity. Because back in John 13, he tells us that the world would know that we are his by our love for one another, which is why here at REH, we have a very, very high view 
of cross-denominational, cross-tradition, cross-cultural love for this reason. Because Jesus prayed that it would be so, and so we take that seriously, that we might show the world his love by the way that we love one another. But though Jesus prays that prayer as a result of the inevitable division that comes, there's also another way to understand this prayer. Uh, In the Apostles' Creed, which is something that we recite every single Sunday, one of the things that we say every single week is that we believe in one holy Christian church, or uh, another way to put that would be one holy Catholic church, Catholic uh, simply meaning unity, meaning we, we see the division that exists out there, but we also believe in one church. We believe that God has one church, one people, despite our divisions, those whom he has called, those who are faithful to him in his word, regardless of their denomination or culture or tradition, are one people. Jesus' prayer has already been answered. And for us, to the best of our ability, we want to live in a way that reflects what has already been true, what's already the prayer that's already been answered, that we are one. And this gets tested all the time, Christian. Now, I remember back in the 2020 election, uh, a news outlet had interviewed me about that contentious season. And boy, was it a contentious season. Looking forward to the next round that's coming up uh, next year. But in this interview, which was a wide-ranging interview, I had made the comment that Christians who are of different, different political parties, by virtue of being a Christian, have more in common with Christians across the aisle than they do with those who are not Christians but in their political party. Meaning, staunch Republican Christians have more in common with staunch Democrats than with Republicans who are not Christians and vice versa. And that's a hill I'm going to die on. But when the article got posted, several people in the comments were very upset, Christians, very upset about me saying this. Uh, Some even rejecting the whole premise, saying, "I, I have nothing in common with them. But those who truly follow Jesus have the same Savior and will one day spend eternity together And I'm not sure what greater common denominator we could have with those of vastly different perspectives and worldviews out there. And I note this simply because constantly, Christian, you're going to be confronted with this notion. And it's fine to disagree. It's fine to even debate about things that are meaningful and understandings of truth. It's fine. But we must also do so with the remembrance that Jesus prayed that we would be one, that, that we are already one in him, And that as a result, we best honor him by reflecting love toward one another, even those that we may disagree with. Second thing, look at verse that Jesus prays. Not only that we would be one, but also that we would know truth. Look at verse 17. It says, sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. I'm not going to spend a whole lot of time on this one because we've actually considered it quite a bit over the last several weeks. Uh, We've seen... uh, over the last several weeks since uh, Jesus proclaimed that he was the way, the truth, and the life, the significance of what it means to see Jesus as truth. That statement uh, from a couple weeks ago uh, from Jesus is not just Jesus stating something about himself. It's something that he very much wants to be true in your life. It is one of the last things that he is thinking about before he dies, that we would see him and understand him as truth. And as John 1 tells us, 
being the word, Jesus is truth. And this is one of the final things, again, Jesus has on his mind that you would know him as truth. The third thing that he prays is that we would be on mission. Look at verse 18. He says, as you, Father, have sent me into the world, I have sent them into the world. As you have sent me into the world, I now send them into the world. You know, there's this concept known as the missio dei, the mission of God. Uh, And it emphasizes the reality that the Christian God is not a passive, unconcerned, or apathetic God who is unconcerned with the plight of his creation. But rather, out of love, this triune God is on mission. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, came on mission. And time and time again, in Mark 9, in Luke 9, in Luke 10, in John 5, 6, 7, and 8, and again here, Jesus reminds us that the Father has sent the Son. And why has he sent the Son? Well, John 5 reminds us that we saw several weeks ago that the Father sent the Son that we might believe in him and have eternal life. He sent the Son to accomplish that work of redemption and reconciliation. But here, Jesus says that just as the Father sent the Son into the world, the Son now sends us, Christian, to bring that message of redemption and reconciliation into the world. And lest we forget, we go not alone on that mission. Again, we saw this a couple of weeks ago, but Jesus promises to send us his Spirit. And why does he send us his Spirit? He sends sends us his Spirit as he uh, reminds us in Acts 1, so that we might receive power. For when the Holy Spirit comes upon us, do you remember what then happens? The Holy Spirit comes that we might be witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. One of the final desires of Jesus is that, Christian, you would be reminded that because you have been redeemed and reconciled to God, You are now sent into the world to bring that message of redemption and reconciliation. I mean, whatever else our lives might hold, whatever else God might call us to do, whatever else we might desire to do in life, there is one constant. Regardless of where we are or what we are doing, that constant is that Christians are a sent people with a message to share. And that mission, that message ought to be woven into our words, our deeds, our commitments, our relationships, and so much more. One of the final things on the mind of Jesus is that his people would go and be on mission. But lastly, lest we become overwhelmed by the gravity of that calling, Jesus' final prayer point reminds us of the only motivation that will sustain us as we go on that mission. And that final prayer point is that we would be sanctified. Look at verse 19. It says, For them I sanctify myself, that they too may be truly sanctified. Well, what does that mean? Well, this word uh, sanctify, and other translations uh, use the word consecrated, uh, is a course where we get the word sanctification. Maybe you've heard that term before. We often use that term describing the ongoing process of leaving our sin behind and becoming more and more like Jesus, becoming more and more sanctified, more and more holy. And while that's true, there's something else going on here. 
Because if that's our only understanding of sanctification, what Jesus says here actually doesn't make any sense. Because Jesus says that he will sanctify himself. Now, why does that not make sense? Because if Jesus is sinless, as we believe he is, and if he himself is the standard of holiness and righteousness, then what does it mean that he will be sanctified or that he will sanctify himself if he's already perfect and without sin? Well, this entire notion of sanctification, of consecration, of holiness actually goes back to the Old Testament and temple sacrifices. See, during the Day of Atonement, which is when people would bring offerings for their sin, both the priest and the sacrifice had to be consecrated, sanctified, or most literally translated, set apart as a special offering before God. Sanctification, holiness, means to be set apart. And for the, the uh, Old Testament high priest, they were bringing sacrifices on behalf of the people. However, these sacrifices were not ultimately sufficient. And eventually, the whole process would have to start all over again. The priests were constantly needing to bring new sacrifices. But then Jesus comes. And when Jesus says, for them, I sanctify myself, he is saying that as the true high priest, the mediator between God and his people, he says, I don't bring a sacrifice that is set apart. Rather, I bring myself. I consecrate myself. I sanctify myself. I set myself aside as an all-sufficient sacrifice. And what we're seeing here is that Jesus is both our high priest and our atoning sacrifice. And he does so in that you and I might then be truly sanctified, truly set apart. And what I want to emphasize in that point is that what we see here is Jesus not saying, I sanctify myself, that they might now go and sanctify themselves. Right? I don't sanctify myself only so that they go and spend a lifetime trying to become more sanctified. Rather, the atoning work of Jesus, Christian, sanctifies you, sets you apart. It's done. It's already been accomplished. And now... A life growing in sanctification is actually a life that's more and more reflecting Jesus, a life of holiness. It's a life more and more reflective of what has already been made true about you, Christian. You are already sanctified, so we now go and live lives of sanctification. And if you are a Christian, you have been set apart because Jesus in his sanctification of himself, did it for you, accomplished it for you. And as a result of that sanctification, we can now live into it more and more over the course of our lives. We worship a triune God, a God who has called you his people and now desires that you be one, rooted in him as truth, to be on mission and to be a holy, sanctified people. These are the things that Jesus has prayed for you. These are the final thoughts and desires of Jesus. And I pray that we take them seriously because they are not just a prayer that he prayed hypothetically for hypothetical people. He prayed these prayers for you. And so I pray that the Spirit of God would make all of these prayers true in our lives. May we take them as seriously as Jesus took them. And may our lives reflect them. Let's pray. 
Father, we thank you that you are a God on mission. Father, we thank you for the sending of your son, the one who has accomplished a great work on our behalf in his life, death, and resurrection. We thank you for the sending of the spirit who applies that work to us and empowers us to be a people on mission in this world. We thank you for the the depth of understanding that we can have when we recognize you as our triune God, Father, Son, and Spirit. I pray that as we have that deepening sense of who you are, we'd have an even greater sense of what Jesus has accomplished, and we'd have an even greater desire by the power of the Spirit to go and proclaim these truths to those also in need of redemption and reconciliation. And Lord, as we, in a moment, approach the table, I pray that it would be here that you would strengthen and encourage us with all of these truths, reminding us that you are here amongst us by your Spirit. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Redeemer East Harlem podcast. For more information on our church and how you can support what God is doing through our church, go to www.reh.nyc.